Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Great to be with you once again for a program that picks up on a conversation that started back in April. I had the Brisbane-based philosopher and medical practitioner Brian Mukandi as my guest, and we were talking about how much of the thinking around COVID-19 is driven by crisis and a sense of emergency that doesn't leave a lot of time for reflection and how once we start to reflect and put COVID-19 into a, a broader political and cultural and historical context, we start to get some uncomfortable but very useful insights into ourselves and our society. And that was a really interesting discussion and I'll put a link to it on our website. So that's all by way of introduction to this week's program, which is kind of like part two of that conversation, where we pick up on this idea of how our thinking about COVID-19 could be limiting us and how we might think about it differently. My guest is Nicole Vincent. She's a philosopher based in Sydney who's worked across philosophy of law, neuroscience, emerging technologies, feminism and gender. And right now she's senior lecturer in the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Nicole Vincent recently published a piece on her website where she argues that when we frame COVID-19 as a medical issue first and foremost, we can sometimes ignore other non-medical frames of reference that might be just as helpful in getting us to the point where we find ourselves less vulnerable to pandemics in general. Framing itself is, it's about how we characterise a situation. And the reason that the characterization is important is because it impacts on how we think about the situations we encounter. It impacts on what we notice or don't. It also uh, changes what we think is relevant or irrelevant, and then ultimately how we approach things. So take ethics committees, uh, which are currently one of, my, one of the topics that I'm working on. So the current framing of what an ethics committee does is that it's aims to prevent various undesirable actions and outcomes. And the kinds of things that people usually think about here are, you know, adverse medical side effects, perhaps privacy infringements. Now, when you frame what an ethics committee does as the prevention of undesirable impacts, and then you have a particular framing of what the impacts uh, that are bad are, what you get is institutional review boards and human research ethics committees that focus on medical things. But man, there are so many other important things that medications or medical uh, interventions can cause, uh, such as when I used to discuss smart drugs, the fact that they can create a very competitive society. Now that's a social side effect, but ethics committees don't do this. They don't think about that. And, you know, rather than just trying to prevent the bad, how about promoting the good? Wouldn't that be a great idea? You know, so the way that this applies to the framing in this particular uh, situation, in our situation, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, is that when you describe, when you characterize what we are currently going through as predominantly a medical problem, well, first of all, if it's a problem, then what we're going to search for is a solution. And secondly, if it's medical, well, then surely medical things are what we are going to want to look for. So we've heard loads and loads and loads about everything from hand sanitizers, personal protective equipment, vaccines, cures, treatments. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, medicine. In fact, I'm bloody glad. I'm so thankful. But there are so many other things that we are not focusing on. 
So the pandemic then is being sustained and propagated by other factors than just the medical. Uh, one of these factors being economic, and, and you have a, um, uh, a rather wonderful personal anecdote to offer here uh, by way of illustration of the economic factor at work. This is from back in the golden era of uh, over-the-counter drugs. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm transgender, uh, and when I got to 17 I simply had to leave home because uh, my home situation wasn't great. And I tried to return to school, but at 17, you know, the world is exciting. And eventually I uh, dropped out and started working at this 24-hour cafe. Now, life is hard when you're 17 without any qualifications. And so effectively what I found myself doing is very often working for extremely low wages, 24-hour, seven-day restaurant, quite often back-to-back shifts. Now, when you punish yourself that hard, eventually you're going to start catching colds. Now, I simply couldn't afford to pull a sickie, right? Um, because if I pulled a sickie, then A, I wouldn't actually earn an income. And for every shift I didn't work, I didn't get any money. I guess I would also let people down. And worse, because of the way in which uh, rostering worked, right? The way that shift managers created next week's roster is by looking at the current week's roster. And if your name had been erased from this week's roster and replaced with other people's names, after you'd recover, you'd find that you you didn't get any shifts. So what I did, and damn, what everyone did in those days, is I reached for a packet of quadril cold and flu tablets. Um, You know, so that's a concoction of paracetamol, uh, of codeine, which is an OPH, uh, so another painkiller, and also a cough suppressant, and pseudoephedrine, which is not only a decongestant, but also a central nervous system stimulant. You know, so effectively what I'd do is I'd say, oh man, I feel horrible. But rather than staying home, because of, of all the pressures, the economic pressures, the social pressures, because I couldn't afford to not earn money and to lose shifts, is I would soldier on with quadrilles, soldier on <laughs> as the, uh, as, you know, as the advertisement jingle uh, goes. And of course, I would go into work looking as if I was fine, but in fact, extremely ill, very contagious, and just the number of people that I must have infected. It totally freaks me out when I think about this now. But I wasn't the only person who did this because those packets were always running short. You know, so it's not even just about the medical uh, and the economic side effects here. What my habit and what everyone else's habit of uh, using those medications made possible um, is a certain kind of, you know, work ethic, a certain set of values that said, this is what we do. The responsible person is the person that goes to work. You don't let the side down. You don't call the boss and say, I'm going to pull a sickie. So yeah, that's the background. And I guess in looking, in reading through the ABC's news on what's been happening in Victoria and hearing about all the people that kept, you know, they would go to work and hearing about how the Premier, you know, would try hard to convince people to stay home, to go get tested. But yet people would head on to work, you know, with symptoms, sometimes whilst they were waiting for results, sometimes when they even had been diagnosed with the flu. Now, why were they doing that? I just can't help wondering whether that value, that work ethic, which says that the responsible person is the person that doesn't let their boss down, doesn't let the team down, that pulls their weight, 
um, that soldiers on. You know, how much is that playing a role in our culture? How much is that playing a role in our society? And also how much are all the economic factors playing a role? Because some of the people that were showing up at work, they weren't the ones that are getting paid a uh, great wage. They were from suburbs which socioeconomically indicate that they were probably in the lower part of the socioeconomic spectrum. Now, if they do not go to work, they're also gonna find it difficult to survive the next week. And merely giving them their 300 or $450 once-off payment, or even the $1,500 payment that's recently been offered, you know, what are you going to do with that when your boss decides that you're no longer going to, get, uh, to have that job because they've given it to someone else? So they're the kinds of factors that I guess uh, fired me up one morning after I recovered from a bad bout of um, uh, gastro and felt very energized, read these articles and thought, oh my God, soldier on. That's what they're all doing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ethos dies hard, doesn't it? And, and this is what you refer to as a, an axiological factor. This is right. This is pertaining to values and social norms. But we also have the legal situation where uh, the basic rule is that social distancing and curfews and lockdowns and so on are, are mandated by law and, and you can get fined if you don't comply. But Again, this is an approach that you believe could be making things worse rather than better. And, and I think this also goes back to your point about instead of mitigating against the bad, why not encourage and foster conditions for the good? Can you talk about that some? Yes, that's right. So if you go back to that example of, you know, the people who were being punished for leaving home, my worry here is that that particular legal framing, you know, I'm, given that my background is in philosophy of law, I totally dig the fact that on some occasions it actually does make sense to have a, to adopt a punitive approach to say, look, we need a deterrent here. And fines are, or at least can be in certain situations, very effective deterrents. But when you consider the kinds of people that these fines might be imposed upon, if the person you're going to fine is already struggling financially, what good is it going to do them to slap on a fine? That will increase, not decrease the pressure for them to get right out there, work even harder to try and dodge the cops, make sure that nobody notices. And it's not that I wish to criticize the police. I think the police have also been doing a fantastic job. Everyone is doing the best they can, but we really need to be a lot more nuanced and, not and to notice that our legal interventions can sometimes backfire really badly. And rather than just having you know, the stick of, we're going to slap on a fine, if only we could offer them a carrot in the form of a, an incentive, a payment. If you stay home, don't worry, we're going to make it worth your while. And it's actually even more interesting than that, because when we ask people to stay home, we're not asking them to do this for their own good, right? Because they've already got the virus. We're asking them to do this for us. We're asking them to self-sacrifice for our benefit so that we don't catch their virus. Now, in my view, although I do believe that they ought to do this as good citizens, at the same time, I also think that for us to be good citizens, we should give them something back in return. You know, so providing people with incentives, 
recognizing that they are making a sacrifice for us. These are all the sorts of carrots that I think we should actually be taking into account, rather than just expecting people to stay home and isolate. And of course, if only we had a universal basic income, which ensured that people were protected against all such disastrous circumstances, we wouldn't even have to develop these ad hoc measures and then pay police to check up on people and find them uh, when they don't stay home. But this runs up against other axiological frames, doesn't it? In, in this case, you know, deep-rooted social norms that have to do with people sponging off the taxpayer and getting stuff for free. I mean, that, that's, it's hard to get around that, isn't it? It really is. And this is where a lot of the work that I've been doing in the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation has, I guess, opened up my eyes to the complex interactions that take place between so many different factors. So notice, we've already talked about the medical factors, we've talked about uh, economic factors, we've mentioned the axiological factors, the values, right? Uh, The legal factors at play, the various working conditions. Now, in the political realm, trying to sell people on creating a universal basic income is a matter of shifting values of getting them to not look at it as a matter of we're going to just be allowing people to bludge and give them something for nothing so they can sponge of us. No, this is something which we may want to do for another value, namely that we care for one another, that we would like to have a better society. So yes, it's a you know it's a deeply divisive political issue. And recognizing the politics and also the, the politicization of this particular topic is another important factor that plays a role in the degree to which we can actually deploy a range of different tools rather than just focusing on this obsession with medicine. And it's not only an obsession of, with medicine, it's also an incredible burden, right? Because think of all the medical professionals that are becoming infected as a consequence of trying to save our lives. Uh, In America, the last time I checked, something like 950 health professionals have lost their lives. So, you know, the degree to which we do not recognize the political factors, the legal factors, and all the other range of factors, what this does is this simply prevents us from being able to deploy a really wide range of tools. And we limit ourselves, we handicap ourselves in the ability to understand what the pandemic really is, what's causing it, what are its underpinning conditions, and then deploying those factors, targeting those causal conditions to fight it. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, with me, David Rutledge. And this week, I'm speaking with Nicole Vincent from the University of Technology, Sydney. We're talking about the many ways in which it's possible and strongly advisable to think about COVID-19 as something other than a purely medical problem with medical solutions. You've also been writing about the way that we get to work. Right, peak hours on public transport with everyone squashed into buses and trains, which is like Christmas for a mutating coronavirus. And it raises questions about, well, not just public transport, but our entire culture of work, right? The whole constellation of issues around how we get to work, when we work. 
So what are you thinking about there and, and what are we not seeing when we assume that the world of work as it exists, it, that, that this is just how it is and we, and we can't make it any different? What are we missing here? I'll tell you a little story. I sat in on a webinar recently where a senior person who works in transport for New South Wales made an amazingly insightful observation. What he said was, you know, we spend so much time traveling on the roads back and forth to work. Maybe we are not part of the solution for the future. Maybe we're part of the problem. Maybe we should have less transport. Now, what he articulated in that moment was the way in which we often fail to notice the factors that in different situations can fuel a condition. So he said, well, what if we didn't all try to arrive at work at the same time or at school, you know, at nine, and then departed around about five? Wouldn't that be better? Because after all, we could spread the times out across the whole day. Or maybe even some people could work on Saturdays and Sundays, but not on maybe Mondays and Tuesdays. Now, I reckon that's a good idea, but here's what I think an even more interesting idea from my perspective. So what we're not noticing is the week itself is something we've invented. It's a construction. The seven-day week isn't something that existed until we started creating it. We have structured society around the seven-day work week and so the kinds of things we tend to do is, well, you know, we have to have X many days that we turn up to work, Y number of days that we rest. But actually, the days of the week don't really exist. So one question there is, what might it be like if we forgot about the days of the week and structured when we arrive at work in a manner that didn't obey our inventions. And similarly, even the nine to five. Notice how the nine to five relates to a 24 hour time clock. Now, sure, the day itself takes a certain amount of time to pass, but do we need to divide it into 24 hours? Do we actually need to synchronize our lives by running our lives according to a 24 hour time clock? Again, this is another one of the fictions we've created. So we've created the fiction of the seven-day week. We've created the fiction of the 24-hour day. And we treat them as if they were immutable, physical features of the world. They are so physical that if you look at the graphs on ABC's website, for instance, you will even notice that the number of infections and deaths seems to fluctuate according to the weekly schedule. And I find that fascinating that these things that we have invented are even reflected in our reality. We make them happen. So that's what I think we're not seeing. We have failed to see that so many of the things that we invented originally, they don't really exist. We could choose to make them not exist if they're not working for us, if they happen to be making life harder, if they happen to be making coronavirus spread more easily. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, this is this is what you are getting at, isn't it? When you write about the confusion of the epistemic and the ontological, the epistemic being the things that we know, the the, the things that we have sort of constructed for ourselves, and the ontological just being facts out there in the world, and that we we tend to confuse the former with the latter. But then at the same time, there is a sense in which our epistemic constructions have effects, create things that just are facts in the world, right? Yeah. And look, David, so I 
I gotta come clean. My dirty secret is that uh, I was trained as an analytic philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a dark secret. Yeah, yeah. And my analytic colleagues um, would, I suspect, uh, bristle at what I'm about to say. You know, that in so many ways, the stories we tell, our episteme, affects ontology. You know, here's one way in which epistemology or the epistemic realm affects ontology. When we used to go to restaurants, I would sit down, people would feed me. Uh, they'd bring me a glass of wine and likewise for my friends. And at the end, I'd look at my phone. I then put my phone near the um, near the card reader. It would go bing. And then they'd let us go. You know, they fed us, they took care of us. And all I needed to do was smile and go bing. How the hell does that work? Well, it works because we've all agreed on a particular set of ideas. There is this thing called money. Money is valuable. Uh, in this case, it happens to be recorded at the banks in ones and zeros. It used to be recorded in banknotes and coins. And people pretended that those things were actually worth something. What's interesting is that pretending is doing all the work. Now, the things we end up believing have very profound effects on our actions. And our actions ultimately are what alter the world. So by living in a complex system, by allowing the epistemic realm to influence our actions, we alter the ontological realm. And a very close example to this happened very early on in the game when we first started locking down. Do you remember those horrible predictions? We were told that, you know, they ran the numbers, they did the simulations, and all the scenarios were awful. We were up for some horrible pandemic effects. What happened? Somehow we seem to have dodged that bullet. Were they wrong? My suspicion is that, that nobody was wrong. Rather, it's that we listened to those predictions, and by listening to them and reacting, we changed the outcomes. So what you're saying then is that people working in non-medical disciplines, right, the, the humanities, the social and political sciences, the legal sphere, the economic sphere, all these people need to th be thinking about how they might reimagine a different system rather than just leaving it up to medicine to come up with a solution, which we know will be sort of another version of taking our pseudoephedrine and, and soldiering on, right? If we get a vaccine, that's exactly what many of us hope we'll be able to do. So a transdisciplinary COVID-19 strategy, what might this look like? Can you sort of set it out in a, a kind of a broad brush way? And, and what are the challenges to our coming up with it, apart from just a lack of imagination? <laughs> okay, so this is the $6 million ARC project, right, that I want. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you what I think are the core issues here. One factor we need to take into account is that the narratives we tell play a critically important role in what we even see. Now, this is not new. Uh, philosophers of science have written about this stuff, right? They used to, they've talked about the fact that there is the theory dependence of observation. Indeed, we fail to notice certain things if we come to the world with certain theories. So one important factor in a transdisciplinary approach is to make sure that we act 
actively engage the media, the public media that has been, is increasingly being decimated, that is increasingly disappearing due to the effects of the advertising dollar going to Google, Facebook, and all the other large corporations. So what role can the media play? The media can play the role of facilitators of discussions. So I guess this is another aspect of a transdisciplinary strategy. I haven't eaten all the brains, right? I don't know all the factors. Moreover, I'm not even sure that my values are right. In fact, I suspect that it'll be a very long time before we figure out what the right values are. Now, what we need to do is we need to come together and engage in civic discourse, in discussions. Now, what the, the role that the media used to play is that it used to help to bring together people from all walks of life. There were lots of different perspectives. We were all part of a transdisciplinary conversation. By heading into our echo chambers on the internet, what we have effectively done is we have curated our own media feeds. And those feeds are specialized just for us. We need to return back to a civic discourse where people from different walks of life can contribute because people see different things. The other, the last thing that I'm going to mention, right? If we start acting as if things are true, we can make stuff happen. We can bring things into existence that otherwise wouldn't have come about. Our ability to imagine what is not, and then to start acting as if it is, our ability to misperceive, to engage with others, and have some of their ideas influence our narratives, that's the thing that makes it possible for us to conceive of futures worth wanting rather than to find ourselves increasingly narrowly pressured to react to situations which we perceive as medical with ostensibly medical solutions, which unfortunately fail to observe that all we're doing when we do this is one, reacting and not trying to create a better future, and b, only employing such a minor number of causal factors in our COVID-19 strategy. You know, so we need to embrace complexity rather than trying to fight it. And the way to do that is indeed by recognizing that anything we do right now is going to change the future tomorrow. And so we'll again have to reconsider what we should do next, as well as having plans for that future. Nicole Vincent, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. And today's conversation was inspired by a piece that Nicole recently published on her website. So links to that and much more on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone and you can find us via RN or the ABC Listen app. Next week, Stephen Nadler returns to the program. He's one of the world's leading Spinoza scholars, and he's the author of a brand new book on Spinoza as a 17th century moral philosopher who can tell us a lot about how to live and how to die in this increasingly strange and unpredictable modern era. That's The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, next week. And of course, you can find me on Twitter in the meantime at David P. Zone. 
And just a quick something else before we go. If you are of a reflective, contemplative nature, and you probably are if you're listening to this fine program, then might I suggest RN's Soul Search as another program that's well worth checking out. Soul Search is about religion, but it's not devotional. It's about religion as a social and cultural and historical phenomenon that's done a lot to shape the world we live in today and that continues to evolve as part of our secular culture in all sorts of interesting ways. Recent episodes of Soul Search have featured an Oxford mathematician talking about religion and science, a look at religion on social media, a look back over the past hundred years since the death of Max Weber, and much, much more. So have a listen to Soul Search and see what you think. That's via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. Thanks for your company. See you next time. 